2: Besswayed and bewithered, beburdened and boot worn. Come thence the pint thirsters, cobble tired and shiver kneed, they head for horizons beyond the mind. Oh, walk on, brethren, walk towards the hearth edge, walk towards the Cooper's band, and set your faces ailwards. And though that black, wet, black night air may seem unending, it shall reveal its sen in dawnbreak and thusly reveal you, sen to sen, the moon underwater. all. Welcome all pint thirsters to the moon underwater. I am Johnny JR, the landlord of this fine, fine establishment where those who wander from the other realm to the correct realm can just take a load off, for goodness sake, and bask in their publy fantasies. Here, we create the pubs of the mind in a pub of the mind. And in my mind, and in my pub of the mind, is also regular the lovely Robin. Hello, Robin. How findest thee, thy san?
3: Yeah, John, I'm great. How are you
2: doing? Ah, well, in the other realm, it's dry January at the minute. And were I speaking to you from the other realm, not the correct realm, uh, I would say it's probably been the most difficult day of dry January yet. We're on the tenth day of the other calendar.
3: Yeah. <laughs> we use the pre Gregorian in the Moon Underwater, don't we?
2: Yes. Yes. So I think it's something like um I don't know, what would it be? Constantine month now? Is it Constantine? Julian. We're using the Julian calendar. Is it are we indeed?
3: Yes, yes. The Julian calendar.
2: And are we are we approaching the tithes of March?
3: We're t- we're approaching Februarius. Uh, good, oh, good, oh yeah februarius yeah we you have a good old drink in februarius actually the names are pretty similar here intercalaris that's different martius aprilis maus junus quintilis sextilis
2: oh my birthday's in quintilis is it no yeah your birthday's in Mayus. Well, it is in this realm it's in Mayus in the other realm. It's Quintillus in this realm.
3: So someone, someone somewhere, Gregor or whoever invented the Gregorian just said, "Right, I'm getting rid of intercalaris."
2: Gregor Rosetsky. Yeah,
3: that Greg Rosetsky came up with the Greg, the Gregorian calendar. Ooh, <laughs> tennis.
2: Yeah. So, Ooh. Uh, tenth day of Dry Jan today. I'm my record is still clean. Okay, mine ain't. Really struggled today. Uh, Went into a little bit of an anxiety spiral. We spoke actually on the phone in the other realm for some time um, about various tech anxieties I was having, and uh, it. I think the difficult thing is, alongside the sort of unending boredom, is knowing that you're going to have to live in your head until you go to sleep. There's no. There's going to be no escaping yourself.
3: Yes, I don't know if that's a universal problem that will be familiar to millions. But it's some, certainly something I can identify
2: with. Yeah, well, I think people can certainly understand, you know, not having that feeling of being able to kind of go, ah, oh, right, that's that done. That's the day done. Let's yeah. just sort of lie back into a cool bath of wine.
3: <laughs> I, Yeah, I mean, my thing is I just have to, I just need to learn moderation. And so, I mean, it was a friend's birthday at the weekend, went up to Liverpool... So we thought we're going to drink. And I'm just going to borrow days from February. That's a good plan, isn't it? I was going to borrow some drinking days from February.
2: Well, that sort of logic is really at the heart of the moon underwater because you're taking time from the future and, and putting it into the present.
3: <laughs> but what if I get so indebted to February that like, dry January doesn't happen Februaryus. Februarius. Februarius. That January doesn't happen until Mayus or something like that.
2: Well, what what if you borrow so many? Yeah. What if you borrow so many days from February that you get to the first of February and February is just not there? Yeah, and you're just sort of in this horrible, horrible like endless empty room for a month. Yeah, explaining to work while you're not in. I borrowed too many days from
3: February <laughs> and it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. So, but it was a great, and, and I think that's the thing is just. I, what, what a great way to approach drinking is to just think, well, it's a birthday, it's a special occasion, so I'm going to drink, you know. So let's, I, I want to kind of live life with those kind of moderation kind of rules.
2: Yeah, and but I think that's what's so pernicious about, you know, when we're talking about the sort of the negative side of alcohol. Yeah. Is to what extent is that, you know, perfectly reasonable thing to do to just want to drink at, you know, birthdays or weekends or, and what part of that is alcohol saying come on, yeah. come, on. Yeah. come on I'll get
3: you, I'll get <laughs> you I always get you in the end So I was quite dark um, <laughs> But I think I, the other thing is I think I overdid it on Saturday and we went to get chips afterwards and I saw in the chip shop they also sold poppadoms so I got a poppadom on a on a bowl of chips <laughs> <laughs> and um,
2: yeah so was it just poppadoms um, or was it other other? they sold sort of kebabs uh, and things
3: and just but they had a like poppadom I can't remember It's all a bit blurry um Yes, uh, and then actually we also drank on the Sunday. It's terrible, isn't it? Uh, we, but we went to the Prince Arthur pub in Shoreditch, which was fantastic. We'll have to go there. Playing really, really good pub, playing really, really good folk music as well.
2: But j'accuse you. You're not- your Richard
3: and Linda Thompsons. you Jackson C. Franks. you Watersons. It was just Quality music, anyway. Sorry, j'accuse. Oh well, I was in the process of accusing
2: you for not going to any lovely pubs in Liverpool.
3: I know we missed we missed the pubs. We went to a Beatles museum, and uh, we went to the party, which was in a hired bar. And then, yeah, we went. Yeah, we didn't really manage to fit in a pub, which was really annoying. I really wanted to go to the Peter Kavanagh, which is a fantastic pub in Liverpool.
2: I'm just trying to remember the. I'm just looking up in my mind the pub I went to in Liverpool, which absolutely. Took my socks away. <laughs> it's quite funny, in the Beatles Story
3: Museum, they've got a kind of mock-up of the cavern, and they've got a mock-up of the Grapes pub, which was opposite the cavern. <laughs> quite like one of those in my house. You know, it kind of had this frosted glass with kind of pretend people inside it.
2: Oh, I've got the photos from inside the pub, but I haven't got the photos from outside the pub. But it looks like a, a ship inside... Can hold it. Oh, I can hold it up to your, oh, to your mind. Nice. It's quite yeah. difficult to make out. I guess there, but yeah. uh, really was a superb. But we went to. Oh, I can't even remember the name of the other pub we went to. Goodness me, John. Where are your pub lists when you need them? Um, anyway, two superb pubs in Liverpool. One was called Doctor Something. Right. That's no use, is it? <laughs> Doctor Robber.
3: Doctor something. And the other let's one looked up, like a ship. Let's just look in the old mind. Liverpool pub. Doctor. Let's look in the mind. Doctor Duncan's, St. John's Lane, Queen's Square, Liverpool. That looks nice. Yeah, Doctor Duncan's. Ooh, Jiminy Crickets. That looks beautiful. Oh, God. I
2: love Liverpool. I thought Liverpool was just fantastic. It's such a beautiful city. It's one of the great, hefty cities. It really is. Alongside your Glasgows, your Newcastles I'm gonna try I'm gonna try and find this bloody pub. Oh forget it, forget it. My mind's not working. I can't look stuff up in my mind. Anyway, Robin, um even though it's dry January and even though people may or may not be doing it, they may or may not be doing it every day, you know, it's real it's sort of dealer's choice. That doesn't stop the mist, does it now? The mist comes flooding through the letterbox.
3: Yeah, it's quite spooky actually. Sometimes. Do
2: you see? We've got we've got four different letterboxes here.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: Each is for sort of a different sized parcel. But then there's a series of sort of you know the game mouse trap, mm. for example, or the Goonies. Uh, where the packages of mist arrive through the different letterbox for the different shapes of mist letter. And,
3: and sometimes I have to do the mist shuffle, don't I, to, to get the mist <laughs> to appear. Yes. It's not, it's not a pretty sight, the mist shuffle, but, you know.
2: But then the mist sort of falls and uh, uh, cascades over these sort of various contraptions, like you might get in, I don't know, a dial book or something. That's the general <laughs> vibe. You get it, what uh, we're But, doing. Rob, what, what are people saying? <laughs> what are people saying in the mist?
3: Well... Had a really nice miss mail-in from Charlie, listening from Henley on Thames. Dear Johnny Jr. and Robin, Having recently listened to the excellent episode featuring Emma Inch, I was delighted to hear her confirming the deliciousness of the Cornish Brew proper job. Love it. Hearing Emma choose proper job as one of her drafts was a lovely surprise, as I was only discussing my own choices with my girlfriend last week, and proper job was always the first pick. Furthermore, if you are ever in North Cornwall and find yourself with a scratch that can only be itched by pint, (laughs) (laughs) then I can't recommend (laughs) enough. I can't recommend enough. The Golden Lion in Port Isaac. It's an old, old smuggler's tavern with trapdoors and tunnels aplenty, and the views over the port are astounding. I still visit with my family most summers, and to sit with my dad and older brothers on the veranda watching the fishing trawlers return their catch is practically a tradition Made even sweeter with a pint of proper job in hand. Can't wait to go back soon. Love the pod and all the best. That's beautiful. And you can look this up in your mind. Charlie's attached a photo, but the the pub there, the Golden Lion, is an absolute thing of beauty. Looks fantastic.
2: In St. Ives? In um, Port Isaac. Okay, I'm just looking it up in my mind. I'm just telling my mind to see photos. Oh, what a view. Fuck Mm. me. (laughs) Oh God. Oh my
3: god. Yeah, it's a hard one to see in, in Dry Jan, isn't it? They
2: got it? proper job on tapping the picture in my mind.
3: They really do, don't they? They do.
2: Oh god, oh god. <laughs> can to say something else.
3: Okay. I had another miss mail in from New York City. Uh from Glenn. Uh, Hello, John and Robin. I just listened to the episode with Jan Ravens, who chose a variety of snacks as her wild card rather than a drink. This made me wonder, have you considered adding a choice of pub snack to the format of the show? I'm sure many of your guests would would have a preferred snack that they would want to be available in their dream pub, whether it be Flame Grilled McCoys, Pickled Onion Space Raiders, or the Humble Peanut. It could even extend to more substantial meals for those who are so inclined, yours, etc. Love it, Glenn. And um, I wonder if you, you... I mean, with with a, with a meal, with a pallet that includes Space Raiders and McCoys, I'm guessing you're, you're an Englishman in New York, perhaps, but you, you never can tell. Have Space Raiders hit New York? Um,
2: I dare say a few conspiracy theorists would have you think so. <laughs> <laughs> but, John, pop snacks, Discuss. Well, uh, Discos, discos yeah. yeah, I definitely Discus. have uh, those. Disgustos. Disgustos. <laughs> That's a great, up. That. <laughs> a great name Disgustos.
0: for it, Disgustos.
3: Actually, do you remember when I had an idea for a pub snack, Stinkies? Uh, vaguely, but remind me. So you know when you're doing like roast veg and you chuck a few like bulbs of garlic in there to just get that nice aroma, and then you, like, mm. you're eating the roast potato and you think, you know what, I'm going to eat some of that roasted garlic, and it's the nicest thing in the entire meal. I thought why not make that a pub snack just a bag of roasted garlic I call them stinkies
2: well John Richardson was once obsessed with the sort of memory of some deep fried garlic he'd once had yeah where it was almost like you know those Sahara nuts oh yeah I love those it was like that but with but with garlic on the inside somehow <sighs> But I'm not sure he he couldn't really remember whether he dreamt it or eaten it in a rela- in a in a restaurant.
3: I love those Sahara nuts. The the sportsman in Bristol does Sahara nuts. It's, it's
2: one of the only reasons
3: I go there. But
2: fantastic snack. I think pub snack TBC. It's been discussed, mm. uh, but since these uh, murmurations are now coming in two halves, yeah, uh, it would. It's just a matter of where to plonk it. Sure, sure. And what we'll do is we'll get all previous sort of 30-odd guests who haven't chosen a pub snack on to all say their pub snack at exactly the same time. <laughs> yeah. That would be good. I think pub snacks for me, it
3: would be, yeah, Sahara nuts, scampi fries, and a dry-roasted peanut. They're probably in my, in my top three, I'd say.
2: Well, I read with some some melancholy, actually, the demise of Brannigan's, which have been discontinued in the UK. And it was a real... A real moment of reflection about where this country is
3: going. The Brannigans were great. They were so thick. Those ham and mustard ones would, like, they'd take the
2: roof of your mouth off. They were so kind of hot. Yeah, sorry to have to point this out. It's roast beef and mustard, uh, and it was ham and pickle. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry. (laughs) A lot of people make that mistake, Rob. Lovely crisps,
3: lovely crisps. Have we got time for one more mist? Oh, yes, we do. Okay. This one is uh, Mysterious Pub Advice, is the missed subject, which I like. Good day, keepers of the correct realm, and this is Ryan writing. Close to where I live is a splendid little pub called the Charlotte Despard. However, it keeps incredibly irregular hours, so planning a visit is all but impossible, simply because one can never be sure if it will be open. I walked past three times this weekend, twice at prime weekend pub hours, but on each occasion I was disappointed and my whistle sadly remained dry as a bone. Most days, it actually looks like it's been closed for good, with wooden boards put up over the windows, but once in a blue moon, it will be dimly illuminated on the horizon at the end of the street, and I know then to make the most of a rare window of opportunity. Inside it is a cosy affair with a good variation of small tables and stools, long benches and a couple of booths, while a three-legged ginger cat can also be found enjoying the ambience. It also has a nook filled with books and board games and a jukebox stuck on free play mode, allowing for unfettered access to music. So what Ryan's asking here is, how do I influence a pub's schedule to be more in keeping with my own? Would you recommend intensive reconnaissance, perhaps a stakeout surveillance mission, <laughs> to see if there's a secret knock or password I'm currently unaware of? Very keen to hear your thoughts. What do you think, John? It's very tantalising, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. That you don't know when it's going to a be open or not. pub. Do you remember Jericho in Oxford? You'd often get lost going down the winding roads. and So finding the bookbinder sometimes is like, I'm sure it wasn't there before it seemed to shift location you know so I do quite like a pub with a bit of mystery
2: I I think it it fits into sort of Alistair Green's view of a pub that doesn't accommodate you as well there's something about the the pub not needing you yeah uh, but the worst the thing the worst thing would be if you walked past it when it was open, but you couldn't go in, you'd feel you were using up one of your times when it was open, <laughs> yeah, you were sort of losing units of pub opening, yeah,
3: yeah,
2: yeah well, here's a question, is it worth it for those magical moments when the stars align? <laughs> Is, is it worth that for all of the nights when you go to your mate, oh, you've got to come see this pub and then it's closed?
3: But yeah, I mean, is it going to be more special because of how infrequently you visit it? Mm. It's a very tricky one. But what, what Ryan's Mist reminds me of is we often used to go on family holidays to this beautiful village called Rommelkirk in Teesdale uh, near Barnard Castle. And one of the pubs there was so like beautifully camera pub. It was almost over the top. And the other one was almost in retaliation to that. It felt like it was kind of fighting this losing battle of being the locals one, And was quite kind of, could be a bit sketchy. And like one time we went in and it was just after the smoking ban and people were smoking up the chimney, lying on the floor.
2: Oh, I used to do that in my mum's house. (laughs) Yeah.
3: And it was just like, it was a real much more kind of basic but still really nice pub and it also kept very irregular hours as well so that's the, what it kind of reminded me of that sometimes it's quite nice to have a pub that's a little bit kind of you know alternative
2: we were at uni when pubs used to close for lunch yeah or in the afternoon you remember the harker arms used to be open midday till two and then four i know and what, you do? Till what, what do, do you do close <laughs> what do you do for two
3: hours What yeah. are gonna do for two hours
2: oh man Well, do keep your mist coming to John at moonunderpod.com. We absolutely love all the correspondence we get. And head over to moonunderpod.com. It's Sen to uh, find out how to support the podcast on Patreon. Also, fingers crossed, depending on factors in the... uh, other realm. We might be doing some more live dates which we're excited about because we've got some good guests uh, <laughs> who uh, who, we've, who we're sort of dying to find live slots for because we know you'll enjoy their company as we enjoy your company. Um, even if we're biting our nails and weathering the sofa arms in dry January, we still do find a lot of pleasure in coming here to the Moon Underwater and um, someone is about to arrive so I do need... Actually, uh, to give the sofas a bit of a dust down because they've got a sort of—it's dust, but it looks like dew, like emerald dew. Yes. Bejeweled dew on the sofas, which is lovely to look at, but you feel bad sitting on it because it does get on your clothes.
3: Yeah, I mean, people come here through the emerald glen on a dun brown horse, and you know that that dew from that
2: emerald glen just goes everywhere. It does. But the great thing about the sofas here is every time you stick your hand down the side, you find a shiny pound. (laughs) You really do. It's never a pen lid. It's never a peanut. It's never just a bit of fluff. It's always a bright, spanking, shiny new pound coin. Robin, Robin, look out of the window. Can you see the smoke signals? Can you see the smoke from the chimneys across the road?
3: Yes, yes, yes.
2: They're sort of smoke signals in the traditional sense in that they are spelling out a message, but the smoke is in the shape of pints. (laughs) Oh, lovely, yeah. Is it Morse code? Like a
3: pint is a long dash and a short one is... A half. A half, yeah. (laughs)
2: A half pint is a dash, uh, no, a dot, and a pint is a dash. That's right. Yeah, lovely. And yeah. I think that they're, they're saying, they're, let me read it as it live. Ye is the first word. That's what ye, yeah. Hast, have hast. Hast, yeah. Visitation hence, visitation henceforth. Ye hast visitation henceforth. That's what the smoke is saying. That's what the pints and halves are telling us. And if I'm not mistaken, that visage at the door is in fact the visitation hence. It's Pete Brown. Hello, Pete. Hello. How are we doing? Come in, come in, come in. Make yourself at home. Thank you very much. Welcome to not just the the moon underwater, but the correct realm itself, where things make sense, really, here, and everything bends towards your will. Now, Pete, in a sense, you've been living in the correct realm in your mind for many many years because you work in pints is I that do. how you describe it
4: i i make people thirsty for a living
2: oh that's, that's what i
4: do uh i've been, for the past 20 years i've been writing about beer and pubs and trying to evoke what is so special about them so this is this is really my specialist subject
2: Amazing, And is it the beer, or is it the pub, or is it the twain
4: it's it's like it's like bacon and eggs or horse and carriage, isn't it? um Each is pretty good on its own. you know I drink plenty of beer at home, and I sometimes go to the pub and drink something other than beer, but you put them together and they just fit you know this is something this is a partnership that's evolved over about a thousand years. And and one influences the other. Uh, beer gave birth to the pub, I would say originally, uh, and then the pub kind of guided beer along its its uh, evolution.
2: Mm. Oh, oh yes, please. And you not you sort of work in lots of different areas. So you do write uh, sort of beer journalism. You also you also worked for advertising for Stella and Heineken. <laughs> <Yes>. So <laughs> that- you may you be responsible in some way for Robin's uh, palate, because he is an absolute Stella junkie. <laughs> oh, God.
4: <laughs> I, I may have had something to do with that. It's It's not the beer it used to be, I have to say, but it was working on Stella in the late 90s. And I used to run a lot of focus groups and things like that. And when you ran beer focus groups, these guys had come in, uh, cast your mind back to the to the late nineties, and it was guys in kind of stonewashed jeans and heavily gelled hair and they'd come in The sort down. of people
2: who listen to stereophonics. Yeah,
4: that kind of I don't want to generalise too much, but those kind of lovely people. And and they would be all there really cool and and sort of uh disengaged. And then within five minutes of talking about beer they'd all be leaning forward and talking really passionately. And I'd be sitting there going, I've not seen... You know, these blokes don't want to give much away, but now they've, they've totally let the guard down. And they're talking about beer more enthusiastically than anything I would see, a, a, apart from maybe their football team or something like that. And I thought, what is it about beer that engages people so much and creates such passions? And it, in, in trying to answer that question, I ended up writing 12
2: books about beer. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> so... Was this the period of reassuringly expensive it was i, I can 't claim any credit for that uh,
4: My job you 'd get new um, brand managers coming in on the on the brewery side, and my job basically was uh, to persuade them that this was the most effective advertising campaign. Uh, running in the country at the moment. We were spending half as much as Budweiser and selling twice the amount of, of beer and getting twice the amount of advertising recall for it. Uh, and my job was to kind of look at the look at the stats and go, look, this is working really well. You don't need to change it. You're going to have to come up with something else to put on your CV uh, because this is the most successful beer advertising campaign in, in history, basically. And
3: was it, were you trying to kind of do away with the kind of negative associations people might have had with a beer like Stella? Were you kind of trying to show that it had a bit of...
4: It didn't actually have them at that point, ah, okay. um, w- when I was on Stella. I mean, I remember it from university, and it was, this, it was this kind of lonely font at the end of the bar that people didn't really go near. And by the time... Uh, so it, it, it got this kind of authenticity, because it didn't feel hyped, it didn't feel pushed in your face, like all the other beers were at the time. And people gradually discovered it, and the trick with the advertising was convincing millions of people that they'd just stumbled across it independently. Right. Because uh, the ads were in French... Um, you know, they were quite difficult. They, they didn't look like any other beer advertising. You kind of remembered three words of French from school and that. And, but the, 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 trick, the trick was that the ads could have been in Swahili because uh, it was all visual. You, you knew what was going on. You, you didn't have to understand the language. But because you rem- knew a few words, you thought you understood it. So the ads made you feel cleverer and they were quite filmic. And it was only w- what, what we did was we made it too popular. And that's when it started. That's when it started getting the negative connotations. Oh right! So um, you're
3: responsible for the negative connotations. <laughs>
4: yes, my my last ever meeting before I left was the first time I heard the term "wife beater." Um, you really? And then it kind of yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, I got out. I, I got out before it all went tits up, basically.
2: Wow. Was, was that sort of a big cloud over the brand? Because it's such a horrible f- phrase. It's such a and especially the way it sort of used so offhand to refer to something so serious—that was that a big worry for them?
4: It was, and they didn't. I don't think they handled it the right way because by that time it wasn't this exclusive premium brand anymore. They wanted it to be a mainstream brand, and so it's becoming very popular. It was out there. It was on price promotion in the supermarkets. You know, that's what killed the the reassuringly expensive sort of idea, and and it carried that it carried that tag with it, and it. In the end, they they reduced the ABV on it twice within a few years. Um, So
2: just talk us through that because you said it's not the beer it was and quite a few beers have reduced their ABV over time but others have increased it because I remember even in the 90s it was not unusual to get a lager that was under 4% on draft, but you, you would just never, ever find that now. So why did some increase and some decrease? So the
4: thing about lager... Oh, well, let me see if I can condense this into less than an hour. So we, we were drinking... For, for most of the 20th century in Britain, we drank session-strength pale ales because we, we didn't have prohibition, but in the First World War, the strength of beer got lowered so that people would turn up to munitions factories on time on a Monday to make bombs and bullets. And so we were typically drinking about three and a half percent beer for most of the 20th century. A Lager typically on the continent is five percent. And so when brands like Carlsberg and Heineken came to the UK, they couldn't persuade people to drink five percent. That was rocket fuel. As far as we were concerned,
3: on the continent they would drink it in smaller amounts, wouldn't they? I exactly. Mean, you know, yeah. they don't
4: go out and drink ten pints. Yeah, you know, our, our whole industry, industrial base. You know, when I first started drinking, when I was like, uh, well, let's say sixteen, uh, when I first started drinking, that the the point was that you could drink ten pints and walk home in a straight line. That that was you know being a proper man, a proper drinker, was you could drink a lot of volume and not get drunk. And it was around the nineties when you know, once we started drinking lager, we started to get the we went on holiday, and went to um went to Europe and went, hang on and came back, going, hang on a minute, our stuff's only three and a half percent, it's rubbish. It's not the proper continental stuff. They drink five percent. And so we gradually got into drinking five percent beers, but in the quantities that we used to drink three and a half percent beers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's where you got the whole binge Britain culture starting, really. And and the whole kind of um yeah, pe- people just kind of not being able to take it, and and Stella was no better or worse than any of the other beers. It was just it was authentic. It was brewed to five point two percent because that's where it had always been, and and we were drinking it, in ways that the Belgians never would. We were drinking it as if it was three and a half percent bitter, uh, and so that's where the problems came.
2: Just to put this into like context, I think it's important for people to understand about units and stuff because it can be a bit vague. So to give your example, say you were to drink. I've just worked this out, but say you were to drink 10 pints, which no one should ever, but say you were to drink 10 pints over the course of a day, and that was 3.5 ABV, then you'd be drinking just shy of 20 units. But if you up that ABV to five, it's just shy of 29 units. So it's the equivalent of sort of four extra pints of that that sort of and people may not notice the abv of the lager they drink it, it often doesn't say it on the pump at, at the pub and it certainly isn't isn't really high on the list of priorities for going on the cans but it it's just interesting that you know say your body gets rid of a unit an hour and you're drinking for 8 hours it's going to take you a further 10 hours to get rid of the alcohol from a 3.5 and it's going to take you a further twenty hours, so you're still going to be over the limit for for driving at the lunchtime the next day.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And our, our culture didn't change. Yeah, you know, I still find it difficult to to go into a pub and order a beer in less than a pint, because it's just what's kind of drummed it's, into us. It's from- so
3: ingrained, isn't it? I remember being in France when I used to play in a band, and the first time we did a tour there, and it was a there's an after sort of party at a venue and all the French promoters on these halves and they were just, all the English people were having pints and there was the kind of you English drink so much kind of thing but it's just so ingrained, the thought of having a half just wouldn't have occurred to me at the time, you know it's no, so strange. and
4: in, in, in the craft beer world now, you know, can see the, the American pint is 16 ounces and our pint is 20 ounces and so you get all the, the IPAs being brewed in America uh, to around 7%, and, you know, one or two pints of that, if you're drinking 16 ounces, is is a nice evening. Whereas if you're drinking three or four pints of it in 20 ounces, then it knocks you out. And there's a lot of places have tried to introduce the kind of two-thirds measure now, which makes sense for a 7% beer. Um, because there's no reason not to drink a 7% beer, you just don't drink it like a 3.5% beer. And even a two-thirds, it kind of, it, it, it feels a bit odd. And, and I think it's something we do need to challenge and hopefully a, a generational thing will happen because I think it was, for my generation, it was a it was a thing about masculinity, uh, that a real man didn't drink halves, which is a nonsense notion. It really, really is. Uh, and I, I, I hope that with our evolving attitudes towards gender and masculinity, that that just will simply cease to exist because it, it doesn't really make any sense.
2: Well, I think, you know, the mad thing is at, at home most people are drinking 440 mil cans which I think Robin and I agree is the the perfect size of can <laughs> yeah so and it if 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 you get a 440 mil glass a really nice one vedette do some nice ones Guinness have also brought out a a 440 mil Guinness pint glass it feels really nice it looks gorgeous and it's you're drinking twenty percent less alcohol but sort of it doesn't affect the experience of drinking
4: this is why i might this, apart from the british pub which which we're here to talk about it's why my favorite drinking experience is in belgium because there you get beers up to 10 12 but you're only ever drinking a 330 mil or even a 250 mil bottle of them and they come with a glass that's designed for that beer and it's it's marketing, you know. It's like let's let's make an, an ornate chalice and this kind of thing, but it's also designed to to enhance the flavour characteristics of that particular beer. So you'll get a big wide open thing if it's if it's all about the aromatics, you get a big wide open glass, so you're really getting those aromas coming through and, and things like that. It's uh, and no, you don't you don't feel silly drinking from a three thirty ml glass if it's a, a westmaller double presented to you in the correct way with the logo facing you and all that wonderful theatre.
3: Yeah, that, it, all, it all matters, doesn't it? Yeah.
2: Before we get on to your pub, I wanted to ask, so you're three times you've won the British Guild of Beer Writers Beer Writer of the Year. Four now. Four times. Congrats. Yeah.
4: This, December the 2nd was the uh, was the annual awards, which I entered for the first time in five years and won again. So, Amazing.
2: <laughs>
4: just coming off that.
2: A lot of people would probably think the kind of person who writes 12 books about pubs and beer, who wins four awards for Beer Writer of the Year, would be sort of so anti-lager, or <laughs> certainly like... But but you've, you've worked in both sides of the coin, sort of the least romantic side of alcohol, which is, you know, advising on marketing strategies for Stella and Heineken. And yet you've written these... These books where you celebrate the traditional pub, the history of beer. I wonder when you walk into a pub, how are those? Are there sort of two sides of your head, rutting against each other? And do you get any flack from other sort of craft beer or beer aficionados about your your CV?
4: Oh, all the time, yeah, and and also things like um, I I've I've been in pubs where I've I've, I've got a glass of wine and people walk in and go, I've seen you, I've seen you, I'm going to tell everybody, I'm taking a photograph of you, you're drinking wine, uh, I'm going to expose you. And and it's like, well, what? You know, because I like one thing. I'm allowed to like more than one thing. Uh, and, and, and within beer, it's like, back to what you're saying, um, when I introduce myself and tell people what I do, quite often people say, you won't like me, I only drink lager which is an astonishing thing to say when you think about it, because that's the person saying, we all agree that lager's shit, and I'm telling you that I only like shit beer. So there's, there's so much that's wrong with that, because, hey, most, most importantly being that lager is not shit. We, we, we have some terrible, terrible, dreadful lagers in this country, and we have some terrible, dreadful bitters and ales in this country as well. Amen to that. But, but, we, but the best lagers that you drink are as good as the best in any other beer style. Uh, drinking a pint, my, one of my biggest beer memories, one of my most perfect beer memories, is drinking uh, unpasteurised, uh, unfiltered Budvar from the fermentation tanks in the brewery, in the cellar in Czeska Budavice. And And after it's been maturing for 90 days, and it's one of the most perfect, perfect beer moments I've ever had, and that was a lager. So so it's it's about the quality of the drink. It's about how it's made. It's about the intention and the passion, and and the and the standards that go into brewing it. Well, irrespective of what the beer style is.
2: Well, I, I one thing I'm always fascinated by when I talk to sort of someone with an expert palate. Is I'm I'm guessing from what you're saying about advertising that all of the main lagers, the big lagers that you get in pubs in Britain pretty much taste the same so it's about selling a lifestyle or an image or an aspiration because to be honest if i see an advert with a load of people you know on a yacht drinking peroni that's being kept cold in the sea i just i know that i hate peroni because i hate lager i just it's not a it's not a kind of snootiness i just hate the taste of lager whatever whatever it is that makes lager taste of lager is not for me but if you were in a... Well, we might get onto this, but what are the good big lagers and what makes them different to the bad big lagers is what I guess I, I want to ask.
4: So there's there's a, two things. that The main one is the word lager is German for to store. And lager gets its name from the fact that a good lager, after it's been uh, fermented, uh, undergoes this period of cold conditioning at like two degrees Celsius for... At least thirty days, or up to ninety days, and you know that costs money. You've got to cre- create a temperature-controlled environment and store large volumes of liquid in it, doing nothing for months at a time. That's an expensive process.
2: So it's not in—it's not really different to the reason why a t- twenty-year-old whiskey is more expensive than a twelve. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's, yeah. you're paying for the time it's being stored.
4: Yeah, yeah, and 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 what that storage does for a good lager is it gives you this kind of delicacy of flavour, but it's not an absence of flavour. You know, a, a good lager still tastes of something. It doesn't taste of nothing. And when you're trying to grow and when, when you're trying to create a big brand, you get to supermarkets and supermarkets say, right, we're going to buy X amount from you. And then the following year, they're going to say, we want to buy twice as much from you, but at a lower price. And you get to a point where the only way you can meet the... You can't you can't say no to the contract because you go out of business because your your entire revenue depends on it. So the only way to meet the terms of the contract is to cut costs. And so you cut costs uh, in this kind of death of a thousand cuts thing. The same thing's happened to cider in this country as well. And there are a lot of the big... Well, there are some of the big mainstream lagers now... That if if I'm talking about sixty to ninety days, they go from brewing into packaging in about ten days. Wow! So they're not actually lag. They're not actually lagers at all because because they haven't been lagered. That's so interesting.
3: And do you and do you can taste that difference that this hasn't been stored and it's lost all the flavour profile and stuff.
4: I, I would not say I could taste the difference blind, but you do know you do know. You you, you can certainly taste it on a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'd, I'd say of the big brands, I mean, there's none of them that do it properly. You know, Someone like Budvar, they age it for ninety days, and they they're not compromising on that. And people don't really understand why that's important, but they don't care. They just do it because that's what they always do. Because they're owned by the Czech government, and they're not subject to the same commercial pressures as the people are. When I'm when I'm forced, I will drink a Heineken because Heineken is family owned, and they believe in the product. And I don't know how long it's aged for, but I know it is aged. I think it might be about thirty days. It's a bit too sweet for my palate, but it's a well-made, well-constructed beer. In a way that some of the other it, some of its competitors just, just aren't. They're just not. They're just, they're just not proper beers.
2: So, what's the worst lager you've ever? Are <laughs> you really pushing on this?
4: Aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say I would probably say Corona. Um, really? Yeah. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you ever, if you, there, there's a reason why people, why they get you to drink it ice cold from the bottle, because uh, 80% of uh, flavour is actually aroma, and so if you drink something straight from the bottle like that, it's the equivalent of holding your nose. You know, when you've got a cold, you can't taste anything. It's because you're not getting all the uh, olfactory stuff in your, in your, in your, in your nasal cavity, and if you were to pour Corona out into a glass and sniff it. The first aroma you would get is of wet cardboard and wet dog because it's because it's, in clean, it's in clean glass bottles, so it gets this uh, thing called sun strike. Uh, so the, the ultraviolet rays cause a reaction in the hops which create these off flavours. So every single bottle of Corona you ever see anywhere is off. That's
3: because so it's in interesting. Clear glass. <laughs> Wait, I've got, a, I've got a question about green glass then. Bottles in green glass have a distinctive aroma and it's an aroma... Of what I like to call Mare Dubliani do, do, do you know what I mean by that? There's the kind of, no. the, the smell of The smell of marijuana
4: Do you ever get that off a oh, green interesting. bottle?
3: Yeah, what's going on there? Uh,
4: I've, ne- I've never correlated that I mean, g- green is better than clear But not as good as brown
3: Right, so what's the difference?
4: It's just, just the amount of UV light that gets through into the beer and uh, and green green screens out some of it brown screens out most of it and and this is a eternal dilemma of marketing because people don't like the look of brown bottles they look dull and a bit shit and a bit old fashioned compared to clear bottles which look really great and fresh but actually brown is the best possible quality you're going to get apart from cans which of course now have no UV light at all mm.
2: So that's why a lot of uh, sort of smaller microbrewers are moving to cans if they can get the capacity to, because the, the beer tastes fresher at delivery. Pete, this is one of the best chats I've ever had <laughs> in my life. Yeah, I'm loving this. Hold up, what
0: was that?
1: Hello, I'm Dave Berry, and I am fascinated by my next-door neighbour. His name is Neil Srinivasan, and he's a leading cardiologist. Since I moved to this particular part of London, Neil and I have started to become friends. Our polite greetings over the fence turned into garden barbecues and drinks down the local pub. But with unfettered access to someone with a job that is so far removed from my own, I'm desperate to find out more about his industry, one that is quite literally a matter of life and death. In Doctor Next Door, I'll be doing my utmost to learn all about Neil as a medical professional, but also Neil as a person. Because, believe it or not, even doctors have lives outside of the operating theatre. But this podcast isn't just here to feed my own curiosities. I want you to be involved in these conversations too. I can't wait to get into this, so make sure you subscribe or follow Doctor Next Door from wherever you usually get your podcasts.
2: Uh, But we absolutely have to get on to creating Pete Brown's dream pub. I think we might talk about what the pub looks like a little bit later because we have taken up a lot of your time firing questions at you about shit lager, but it's so illuminating... So, we're going to start with draft. You've got two draft choices in your pub. What are you going to have? Uh,
4: so, the first one is Timothy Taylor Landlord.
2: Interesting.
4: So it's got to be on cask. Uh, and this, this means that the actual owner of the pub needs to know what they're doing in the cellar. Because Landlord will change. It'll present itself slightly differently depending on the ambient temperature in the cellar, the, the atmosphere, all this kind of stuff. And, and so, it's got to have a landlord who, who, who loves this beer and absolutely knows what they're doing with this beer. But it's just the perfect... If 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 someone was saying convince me about ale, I've I've never had one that I like. I don't see what the point is. Then then that would be the the beer that I would use to to convince mm. them.
2: Yeah. Well, it'll depress you to know that my last experience of Tim Taylor was an off pint served in what's a what's our code word for Green King Robin
3: Gawain and the <laughs> uh,
2: yeah in a Gawain and the
1: pub yeah <laughs>
2: um and it was it was not just a bit off it was sort of vinegar. And I, I gave it to the landlord and I says, this is this I said, this is off. And he tasted it. It was like, oh God, yeah, that's really gone. And I was like, how do you know it's half past six on a Friday night? How do you not know that? But um what what makes it so good? Because I like landlord. I just wonder if I don't often have it kept well enough.
4: If you if you don't adore it, then that's probably it. And and the the thing about a cascale is it's still it's still alive in the cellar it's still undergoing this secondary fermentation so it's got it's got live yeast in it that's still working in the beer and that means you know it's like a it's it's like a pint of fresh milk if you if you leave that out on the side for too long it's going to go off and it's the same with cask ale it's uh, it needs to it's going to the cellar it needs to be tapped and vented it needs 3 days conditioning and then you need to taste it to make sure that it, the condition is just right and then once you got to that point you put it on sale and you either, in a perfect world, in the, in the perfect pub in the Moon under Water, you'd either sell that entire uh, cask in three days, and any that was left, you'd take it off again. Because it, it has this window of perfection, uh, and either side of that, it's not great. And yeah, I often say about a lot of cask like that is. If it if it's a if it's a hundred percent right, it's the best beer you've ever tasted. If it's ninety five percent right, then it's shit. It's
3: funny, yeah. I was I was expecting your first choice to be maybe something kind of obscure, but Timothy Taylor is such a kind of well known and well loved beer. Like, so that you know, what 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 is it about the taste that appeals to to so many people? Do you think?
4: Well, do you know? I've been have been. There was difficult part of of my job is writing tasting notes because. There are two aspects to it. One, one, you've got to kind of detect the flavours, and there's a huge amount of snobbery in the beer world, as in the, in the wine world, or any other kind of thing involving taste, about, oh, well, I'm getting, I'm getting an orange note. I, yes, Seville oranges. No, Seville orange pith. And there's this kind of yeah. competitiveness about who's got <laughs> the best palate, yeah. uh, which is just ridiculous, you know. And, but the other thing is then putting it into words that mean something to people. So I used to, I used to spend years describing American hops as floral, and then I did a focus group on Cascale in the north, and all these Geordies were going, I don't want flowers in my beer. God, I'm not drinking that. Floral. And it's like, oh, I guess that's the wrong word to use for for the flavour that I'm experiencing, you know. And and what I'm getting to at the moment is we kind of miss a point. We say, Okay, is it is it the hops or is it the malt? Is it the and it's like, well, no, it's just the way they all come together. It it just tastes like a really good beer. Don't don't try and break it. It's like 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 a like a psychopathic child dissecting his pet rabbit to see how it works and then he can't put it back together again you know it's it's like no just just appreciate the rabbit kid just <laughs> um but yeah it's just it, it's quite hop forward but not in an aggressive way so you get some nice bitterness you get a full you get a full palate. you get you get the different flavors interacting on the palate, and it's then it's drying at the end and makes you want a little bit more and so you get complexity and more richness at, at the same time
2: so What's your second fully functional rabbit? <laughs>
4: yes, I've got to declare an interest here, um, but it's it, it's Samuel Alsop's India Pale Ale. So Samuel Alsop was the first person to send India Pale Ale from from Burton on Trent to India uh, in eighteen twenty two, and kind of created that. Didn't create it, but popularized that style of beer, which is now you know the leading craft beer style around the world. And a few years ago, I had a call from. Uh, Jamie Olsop, Samuel Olssop's great-great times seven grandson, and said, "I'm said I'm, I'm I'm relaunching the beer. I want to get the beer back. So I've been ha- advising him and helping relaunch the first ever." proper ipa brand and tasted on cask this year it's absolute perfection and I, I wouldn't say that if it wasn't because it had to be if i was if i was going to kind of be involved it's like oh, the beer's got to be this good and after about three attempts it, it was that good so it's a bit stronger it's about five and a half percent uh slightly chewy uh it, it's one of those beers for the end of the night when you know it's your last pint and you're going to go home after it uh and it and it's it, it begs to be it begs to have a, a little piece of cheese with it and and, a nice kind of uh, Somerset cheddar just to kind of uh, set it off
2: I'm I'm just looking it up in my mind and I have to say the way that the imagery has sort of uh, coalesced in my mind is beautiful it's got so I love the I'm just looking at the bottles in my mind I love the colors they're so it's so sort of striking but quite simple I really like that. Someone has chosen the absolute perfect colours.
4: The designer on this is an absolute genius. Uh, is a, a guy called Alec Teer, and um, he's very good at taking classic victor. It's all based on the old imagery from the 19th century. And he's very good at taking those images and making them modern in ways that, unless you're a professional designer yourself, you, you can't tell how he's done it. You can't see what he's done. But, you know, you, you, you could probably think of any, quite a lot of designs where it's like, well, it looks Victorian, but it also looks contemporary and cool. How, how does it manage to kind of do both? It's, it's retro, it's definitely nostalgic, but it's also contemporary. And, it, and he, he's absolutely wonderful at doing that job.
2: Well I would say what's modern is is the is the contrast of colors and the font but what is traditional is the drawing and the shape of the bottle and the label and it it is I mean it's it's quite early in the morning here in the correct realm but uh, I wouldn't mind trying the
3: pale ale while we're uh, on the subject of IPA I've got uh, your book here Hops and Glory Can can you tell us a bit about the kind of inspiration and 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 the the story
4: of that book? Because this this is quite a fascinating story. It's funny. Um, At the time I wrote it, so that that book I wrote the book and I did the journey in two thousand seven. And at the time, there were a lot of these blokey travel books where people get drunk in a pub and for a bet decide to take. A a fridge around the coast of Ireland. Right, yeah, I know. Mentioning no
2: names, but a very specific travel book.
4: (laughs) But but that that particular book gave birth to a genre of those blokey travel for a bet books.
3: There is a good one, McCarthy's Bar. I love McCarthy's Bar. Have you read that? That's a really good one.
4: That was a real inspiration to my second book. Right.
3: McCarthy's bar is where the the author g- goes visits every pub called McCarthy's in Ireland or attempts to and he, yeah yeah
4: and he's it, it's slightly elevated it, it, i think that book is slightly elevated above that genre because it's, it's got some real depth to it and it's got a proper reason to he's he's called McCarthy he's called Pete McCarthy uh the premise is it would be rude to go past a pub with your name on it and it's that that was a real inspiration when i did when i did so my second book three sheets to the wind was was my first travely book and I kind of learnt, I kind of learnt what I knew when I started that from him, and then that book won an award, and then after it won an award, I was in the pub with my mate, <laughs> and this really happened, and he said the thing about three sheets to the wind was you got on a plane and you went to Belgium, and you got on a plane and you went to the to America. It, it wasn't an actual voyage; it was a bunch of. Short trips He said you you should do a proper You should do a proper voyage A proper beer voyage And I said well The thing about beer is Famously beer doesn't travel well There aren't any real beer voyages Oh shit I've just remembered one And the beer voyage I remembered (laughs) Was the journey of of India Pale Ale Which got its name Because it was brewed in Britain Mainly in Burton-on-Trent Then it went on a six month sea journey Through the Atlantic Round the Cape of uh, Good Hope uh, Through the Indian Ocean And into Calcutta and it, and it magically matured and conditioned on this journey and when it arrived in india it was a different beer than the one that had left and indepollo was becoming increasingly popular as a beer style at the time and i thought everyone tells that story no one has recreated that journey to see what that change actually is like
2: so you sailed round the cape of good hope
4: yeah so as soon as i had the idea i had to do it it was like it it it, it possessed me And it was just like there was no choice. I I had to do it. As soon as I realised I had to do it, but my first feeling was one of total dismay. Because it's (laughs) like I'm going to do this, and and I'm not a traveller. I'm not someone. I'm not an intrepid. I've never you know taken a year out travelling or anything like that. And also. No ships sail that route anymore because, you know, the Suez Canal opened in 1869. Because that journey was so long and so arduous, they dug a canal through Egypt <laughs> yeah. so that no one had to do it anymore. Um, and from the 1870s onwards, anything going to India, it took three weeks through Suez. So I had to piece the journey together. Uh, and I did, the first bit was a and a o cruise ship. To, to the Canary Islands, uh, from there I managed to get a ride on a toll ship that was sailing across to Brazil. Uh, when I got to Brazil, I had a week there, and then got on a container ship that went back across the South Atlantic, round the Cape of Good Hope, and uh, and up, up around the Arabian Peninsula, and then into into Mumbai. So that journey took me about three months, and I was carrying a barrel of beer with me all the time. <laughs> well, you
3: you were talking about struggling with tasting notes. Your tasting notes about the beer at the end of the book are absolutely exquisite. Um, should I read a little... <laughs> had
4: to be. <laughs>
3: yeah, after 400 pages. <laughs> yeah. Shall I read a couple of sentences? It poured a rich, deep copper colour, slightly hazy from the sheer weight of the hops. The nose was an absolute delight, an initial sharp citrus tang, followed by a deeper, tropical salad of mango and papaya, and when I tasted it, my tongue exploded with rich, ripe fruit seasoned with a hint of pepper... I mean, I I can taste it reading that. That's what's so great about that piece of writing, <laughs> so I think. Can I. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
4: I mean, I, I I had to work up to that one. I really did because it was uh, also also you know I've been carrying this barrel with me over I think it was eighteen thousand miles, and you know I, I, when it opened it it had to be good. It really had to be good, and thank goodness it was. How
2: big was the barrel?
4: It was nine. It, it was it was a pin which is. I've forgotten how much a pin is. But it was was, was about sort of 18 inches high. uh, So about um, the
2: size of like a mini keg that people might be familiar with. A bit bigger than
4: that, yeah. So one and a half times that.
2: So you could probably fit it in your carry-on. But but you wouldn't want to physically carry it everywhere. No,
4: it was an absolute bastard. It really (laughs) was. (laughs)
3: Now the shipping forecast issued by the Met Office. Viking west variable two to four, occasionally westerly five at first, east northerly or northwesterly four or five, becoming variable two to four. West slight, occasionally moderate at first, east slight or moderate. In west occasional rain. Good occasionally moderate. North at Sierra. Northerly or Northwesterly four or five pints. Occasionally lager at first, becoming variable two to four. Slight or whiskey. Occasional rum. Desire becoming fervent. Pubs. Occasionally distant. South at Sierra, Pintily or North pintily, four or five, occasionally cider, becoming pubs two to four. Slight or moderately drunk. Occasional rain. Pub appearing in mist, variable. German bite. Variable two to four pints, becoming cyclonic three to five pubs. Pubs or pubs, rain later in pubs, consuming mist. Pubs, pubs, pubs.
2: We now move on to your bottles and cans. I'm assuming Corona is not going to feature here, but what what would your what would your two dream bottles and or cans be?
4: So I've gone for two. So I've gone. I've gone for two cask on on draft. So I've got to kind of spread the net a little bit on the bottles. So my my first one is a Perry. By Tom Oliver. Uh, uh, Tom Oliver is one of my favourite people in the entire world. He, he is the world's best Perry producer. Uh, he's also tour manager and sound engineer for the Proclaimers, and and is a sheep farmer. Really? So it's just like it's just like he's a god basically. Um, and when, when he always says when because he, when he's, he, he's got this collection of motley wooden barrels. And he puts uh, he puts his uh, juice, his, his pear juice, sorry, his apple juice into the barrels, and then each one matures in a slightly different way because of the microflora in the wood, because of the age of the barrel, atmospheric conditions, and then he blends them to get the the result that he wants, and then ages it again. Um, and he says he always says that blending the different juices is like being a sound engineer with the different levels on the on the faders. I mean, when you get when you get the right level and the right balance you just know that it's there so he he he, he makes cider and perry the same way he mixes sound
3: that's brilliant uh
4: and i is one of the most interesting people to talk to and his perry is amazing it's just like it's so delicate at, at its best it's superior to champagne in my humble opinion but a sparkling Perry, it's got that lightness a faint elderflower hints so a little bit of pear a little bit of fruit a little bit of citrus but but just so wonderful and, and moorish and dry so that's so that's my my essential first bottle
2: and is there a specific one? Because I'm just looking up uh, Oliver's cider in my mind, and theres he's got a hell of a selection of different bottles.
4: Yeah, and it's definitely bottle-conditioned stuff, which is produced the same way that, that champagne is. Um, but in terms of one of those, it depends on the year. It depends on the year and the blend. Uh, you know, it's variable, so...
2: Well, you are welcome to, uh, to whatever is the, the current or greatest vintage of Tom Oliver Perry, bottle conditioned. Looks superb. Uh, what's your second choice?
4: And so I've got to, I've got to, I mean, I did mention that I do occasionally drink wine. And I, I like wine as my off-duty drink. It's, it's the one I don't have to think about. I don't, I don't have to analyse. I, part of my brain is not working yeah, part of my brain is always working when I'm drinking beer or cider uh, and wine I can just switch off uh, so I'm going to put uh, Cloudy Bay Sauvignon Blanc in there which is a, a beautiful wine and it's uh, three, three bottles of that wine is, is uh, how me and my wife got together so uh, <laughs> <laughs> three bottles
2: well sort of are but, but try to keep within government recommended yeah. guidelines it's, it's, it's
3: not the first time it's been in the moon underwater as well it's a very popular choice Oh good, good, yeah, yeah, it's a great one.
2: But it might be a first for cloudy bay, is it, Robin? No, I think we've had a cloudy bay, haven't we?
3: Oh, oh, we, oh, have we had some oyster bays before?
2: We might have had an oyster bay. The um, the newsagent champagne.
4: Yes, the one, the one that tries to be Cloudy Bay But pretends uh, to be Cloudy Bay
2: Cloudy Bay is lovely, yeah What a superb opening selection We've got Timothy Taylor's Landlord And Sam Samuel Alsop's IPA on draft We have Tom Oliver's Bottle Conditioned Perry And Cloudy Bay Sauvignon Blanc In Bottles and Cans But before we get into the nuts and bolts of Pete Brown's Dream Pub, uh, we have to break for our pub quiz to end part one. So I hand over to resident brain box Robin Allender.
3: Okay, everybody, pens out, eyes down, it's time for the quiz. for Zimbabwe, but he was born in South Africa. I know Alaska is bigger. That wasn't the question. Put your phone away. Right, Michael Jackson's Funky Monkey have been deducted five points. Thank you, John. And I can confirm that Cloudy Bay has not been chosen before, but three people have chosen Oyster Bay, uh, which was Vic Hope, Taylor Glenn, and Shit London Guinness. Great, um... (laughs) (laughs) So, the pub quiz uh, this week. Thanks, John. As ever, I'm going to read out three questions and then we're going to give our listeners and the Moon Underwater regulars an opportunity to cogitate and ruminate. And then in part two, I'll go through the answers and we can see how well we all did. So this week, I thought, because Pete writes so beautifully about London in Shakespeare's Local, which is Pete's brilliant book about the George in Southwark, and I really like the bit in, um, in that book where you kind of imagine this time-lapse of London with all these buildings shooting up and the Shard shooting up like that. And so this week's quiz is about London landmarks. Okay, so question one. We all know that Big Ben is the name of the bell, right? But what is the name of the tower in Which Big Ben doth reside? I don't know why I wrote it like that, but (laughs) what's the name of the tower basically that Big Ben is in? It's good,
2: it's a good question. It's a good question, but nice. We'll hold, we won't get to know the answers till after, till part two, folks. (laughs) That's that's the deal you make with the devil on on the moon underwater.
3: Question two How is the building at 30 St. Mary Axe better known? So that's an address, 30 St Mary Axe, and that's the actual name of this famous building in London. But how is it better known? Uh, question three, monument. We all know the tube stop, but what is the monument, a monument to? So what is the monument of London's famous monument? What is it, a monument to? Those are your three questions.
2: Very good, Robin. Superb pub quiz. And folks, we leave you on tenter hooks, but you don't have to stay on them for very long uh, because you can skip to the next transmission of The Moon Underwater. Uh, but just a reminder before you go to head to moonunderpod.com to find out all about Patreon, how you can support the upkeep of this hallowed tavern, uh, and also buy some merch. Get some pint glasses in your hands, and I've got one, and they are superb. Um, They really are. They really are very good quality pint glasses. So with that, we bid you farewell and we'll see you in part two.